You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. I'm Jim Friend. I hope you're enjoying a great summer. Today, I'm joined via Skype by Diana Kieran, who is a Senior Director at Changing Our World. Diana, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. It's really great to be here. So, Diana, you're a consultant for us with the team up in Albany. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Yeah, I'm um, working as a director on the Reigniting Our Faith campaign for the Diocese of Albany. I relocated there from Massachusetts to work on the campaign. The campaign is really exciting for me. Um, it's because it's really not a traditional bricks and mortar capital campaign that you think about. It's really about ensuring the vitality of the parishes so that our faith can be shared with the generations to come. So for me, it's great because I'm not only supporting the local parish needs, but I'm also helping to meet the increased demands for the future, right? So helping to support education for seminarians and Catholic schooling resources and, you know, looking at the care for retired priests and investing in, in evangelization. So not only is the campaign unique and exciting, but my team is awesome. You know, when you think about it, Jim, there's five of us covering a territory of 10,000 square miles. That's larger than what the state that I come from. Wow. That's yeah, huge. Yeah. It is. But it's really rewarding. I can tell you that one of my parishes just hit goal this week. Great. Yeah, I was so delighted. They were so happy. They followed my recommendations. They stuck with the plan. I was able to learn their trust, and they really valued my experience. First, they may have been a little bit skeptical about the plan, but I was able to lean on my past experiences and successes, which helped me establish credibility early on. And they were able to hit their goal in about seven months, raising over $528,000. And it's going to do a lot of really great work. And that's what's important, right? It's not about the money. It's about the mission. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, what you described there is it's really all about the relationships, too. You established a good relationship with the pastor, and you built that, that sense of trust, and they relied on your experience. Congratulations. That sounds like a real win for the parish and certainly another win for the diocese. And the case components that you have described are so common. And I think we're seeing in, in different dioceses around the country the care for our retired priests, the need for social service ministries. Many of those cases, I think, ring true with some of the folks that are probably listening today. I think you're right. And I think one of the real appeal to this particular campaign, Jim, is that 70-30 split with 70% coming back to the local parishes and 30% going to support those broader diocesan initiatives, that really makes a difference. You know, the, the parishes really feel that it's all about them and their needs while contributing to the broader vision. Diana, I can hear the love you have for the work that you do and the relationships that you're creating. I understand you have a background in educational fundraising. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I brought to CW about a decade's worth of experience working in academia and for nonprofit organizations. So my specialty is in digital fundraising. I'm known amongst my colleagues as a maverick leader who creates really innovative, award-winning fundraising and stewardship programs. So one of the things that I was able to carry over into faith-based fundraising from higher education was my experience in digital fundraising. And we piloted that during the pilot phase. And as a result of being able to use more creative 
forms of fundraising through social media, through email appeals, and so on, we were able to bolster basically the in-pew general campaign by 20%. And that particular parish who used those techniques, because they had a pastor who was willing to take that risk, if you would, or take a chance in doing something a little bit different, something a little bit outside of the box, they were actually able to hit over 130% of their goal. Tremendous. I think just being able to take some of the techniques used in higher ed to help build parish-based fundraising and diocesan, archdiocesan campaigns, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I couldn't agree more. And I think a lot of our clients and a lot of uh, different nonprofits and parishes around the country are struggling with how to figure out how to connect social media with fundraising and maybe even an effective use of social media, which obviously impacts fundraising. Absolutely. And they should definitely take a look at the LinkedIn article that I just wrote about digital fundraising techniques for parishes. Perfect. Excellent. Diana, I know that you recently ran this, uh, or you were scheduled to run a 120-mile race through Zion National Park in Utah. Tell us a little bit about that. That sounds like quite an adventure. Sure. Yeah. So I run these wacky races called Ragnar. And this particular race we had planned on running for a year. It was running 120 miles of trail through Zion National Park in Utah. So I flew out to LA where I met with my teammates And from there, we drove to Zion. It was a long day, Jim. I mean, we drove through like California, Nevada, Arizona until we got to Utah. And do you know what it was doing when we got to Utah? What? It was raining. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. That couldn't have helped the course. Oh, my gosh. It was raining so hard. There were streams of water just jetting off the top of the mesa, (sighs) forming waterfalls. Yeah. It was beautiful. Yeah. It It was a majestic sight. But you know what? It made for some really dangerous road conditions and some really dangerous trail conditions. Sure. So we continued to drive up the mountain through these single lane switchbacks until we arrived at the top. And once we were there, we basically had to unload and set up camp. So we had to park five miles away from the campsite and pull everything in using a Ponderosa wagon, you know, like the ones in those old John Wayne movies. (laughs) It took three of us to pull these wagons into the campsite. So we get all of our gear set up. Then we have to go and track and get wood chips. And we put the wood chips down to keep the campsite dry from water coming up into the tent. And by the time we were done, it was nine o'clock and dark. So... We then had to go up to the athlete village and register our team. It was a total mess, Jim. I didn't think that there was mud in the desert or on a mesa, but there was mud everywhere. It was like mud stock, okay? (laughs) It was awful. And so as we're going up to register our team, I hear a woman say the race has been canceled. And my heart just sunk. Oh, I can imagine. You came all that way. Yeah, we've been waiting a year for this, to run this glorious mountain trails all through Zion. I couldn't believe it. I said, what do you mean it was canceled? And the woman said, the race was canceled because of the dangerous trail conditions. More rain had fallen in a day than an entire month. And the earth eroded and the rangers and and rail and race officials just determined it was too unsafe. You know, the trails were completely obliterated. Sure. So, yeah. So what we did was um, we returned to the campsite and... A ranger came by and said, you know, you guys really need to get off the mountain. It's really unsafe. There's flash flood warnings. You know, you kind of need to go. And so, like, we had to 
step back as a team and decide what was really going to be the best solution, right? We could either, one, walk five miles, try and get the car out of the mud, pack up, and try and get off of the mountain along with 2,000 other individuals, or we could take a chance, right? We could enjoy one another's company. We could cook some food on the grill. We can camp out. And you know what? Let's just make the best of it. So even with the flash flood warnings, we decided it would be safer for us to stay put and kind of ride out the storm for the night. And we did. And do you want to know the miraculous thing? What? We all woke up the next day. We were all dry. There was not an article of clothing that was wet, the tents, everything. We were dry. We remained dry somehow. So Whoa. we were all happy. That's yeah, great. I know. Yeah. It was great. It was Amazing. Great. We got off the mountain the next day and got a hotel. And what we decided to do was, as a team, we just decided that we were going to make the best of it. Zion wasn't going to rob us of our time and our joy together. We we're going to make lemonade out of lemons, right? So we decided that we were going to start our own race. And we ran 80 miles together from Zion National Park to a small little city called Lake George. And we finished at a Hawaiian restaurant and we had a big feast and we celebrated our accomplishment. Along the way, a woman pulled over and she said, are you guys running? And we said, yes. And she said, were you supposed to run Ragnar and Zion? And we said, yes, but it was canceled. And she said, oh, I know I'm a race official. She said, I just want to pull over and tell you, thank you for running because you are the embodiment of the Ragnar spirit and you inspire us. So wow. even though we didn't get a chance to run, you know, our 120 miles, uh, we were able to run 80 and make some really nice memories together. Boy, it sounds like it. That is a great story, Diana. Thanks for sharing that with us. I, do you run other races around the country or is that kind of an unusual experience for you? I run these across the country, either 200-mile relay, relay races or these trail races. In fact, I've got one coming up. It's 120 miles. And we hope to reclaim victory. That's going to be in Vermont next month. So, yeah, that's what I kind of do to relax. <laughs> Boy, and, and you know what? Over the, over the 4th of July weekend, I was just happy that I got on the treadmill. You are inspiring, Diana. Let me tell you. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Well, uh, Diana, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for being on the team uh, and all the great work you're doing in Albany. And thanks for sharing a little bit about your background today. Thanks, Jim. My pleasure. So as I promised a couple of weeks ago, during the month of July, we are focusing on discussions on summer planning as a way to help you impact giving at your organization in the new fiscal year. Today, we're joined by Scott Whitaker from the Diocese of Austin. Scott joined the diocese in 2003, where he serves as the Secretariat Director for Stewardship Development and Communications and Executive Director for the Catholic Foundation. Scott oversees all areas of stewardship and development in the diocese through his focus on supporting parishes and schools that are conducting capital campaigns, major gifts, planned giving, and endowment management. Today, Scott and I will talk about a variety of topics on the subject of diocesan development. And so, without further ado, Here's my conversation with Scott Whitaker. Well, Scott Whitaker, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you with us today. 
Thanks, Jim. Glad to be here. So, Scott, you and I have known each other for a number of years, uh, I think primarily through the ICSC conferences. I've seen you give a number of great talks uh, at the national conference. And, of course, I keep up with you and your family on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all those great things. It's great to have you on the show. Well, great. Thanks. Yeah, we've known each other for a long time, and that's the that's the beauty of social media, uh, isn't it, where we can still uh, – still keep in touch in, in so many ways, even though we're all in different places. So it's uh, still great to connect with you through that. So tell us a little bit about the Diocese of Austin. Uh, you are the Director uh, of Stewardship and Development for the Diocese. Uh, how long have you been in that role? Yeah, I'm actually one of the old, uh, probably dinosaurs, uh, at least approaching that uh, these days. So I've been in my role about 16 and a half years now. All right. Uh, which is uh, kind of hard to believe. I've gone through a couple of bishops and uh, have completed a couple of campaigns and lots of activities and lots of things going on uh, in Central Texas. So I'm sure we'll talk more about those as we go along in our conversation today. That's wonderful. And how did you get started in development, Scott? I'm just curious. No, uh, I'm probably like a lot of most or like most uh, old school development officers. I actually kind of fell into it. Uh, I was, uh, I have a background in agriculture. Oh, wow. I, um, <laughs> my last year in college, I actually worked for our university advancement office and I fell in love with development and, um, so much so that I was actually thinking about changing my major and, uh, my advisor gave me a great piece of advice. He said, Nope, if you want to do it, just, uh, graduate, get a job and, uh, and, and keep going. So, um, I was exposed to it uh, at the university level and just really fell in love with the relationships, fell in love with um, how uh, people were, were um, considering you know, proposals and giving back to, to the university. And uh, that, really, that really struck me. I really liked philanthropy and their generosity. And um, so my, uh, my first kind of entrance would be the kind of the old school route. I, I really almost fell into it. Well, I think a lot of us fall into that category. I, I did as well. I was in parish ministry when our parish did a capital campaign and then uh, eventually got a job with the consulting firm that did our major capital campaign a couple of years later. So mm -hmm. you, you just never know where God's going to lead you. Right. Tell us a little bit about uh, Diocese of Austin, you know, the, the population, the demographics, some of the folks that you serve. Austin has, uh, has changed a lot uh, in those 16 years that I've been here. So much so that we jokingly tell people that Austin is not a fun city to move to, so don't come here. <laughs> uh, Austin has, has, has grown. I, I think the, the latest uh, demographics and numbers that I've seen, you know, we're somewhere in the uh, 10, 11, 12 range in terms of size of city. Uh, in the United States, which is kind of hard to believe when you're up against some of the larger cities like, uh, you know, Dallas, Chicago, New York, L.A. But uh, Austin has seen just some tremendous growth. Um, we have seen uh, a tremendous opportunity here in in Central Texas. Uh, Texas in general is is a, is a pretty good place. Uh, there's no state income tax. The jobs seem to be pretty plentiful, and uh, you know, the weather is pretty nice, and so it's a highly desirable location for a lot of people. And I think uh, Austin, being in the center part of the state, has access to a lot of recreation, jobs, um, just a really great place to be in, in, the, in the middle of the state. So I think people are really drawn here. So Austin's seen significant growth 
uh, over the uh, over the last decade. So, um, funny little story. I I once drove in a car with my father and my brother from. Orlando, Florida to Phoenix, because that's where I was born. We we're driving out to see our family in Phoenix, and we drove all the way across the state of Texas. <laughs> and I think, and that was a long drive, as you can imagine. Right. And so, sometime past Dallas, I remember this was before internet radio or Sirius XM and all that. I remember pushing the dial to search for a radio station, and it just spun and spun and spun. <laughs> there was nothing for it to grab onto. <laughs> I'm sure it's built up a little bit in the last 30 years, but that was my trip across Texas. Yeah, yeah. There's still parts in West Texas that would probably fall into that. It's still uh, pretty desert-like uh, in, in West Texas, and there's not uh, not a lot uh, out in that direction. But uh, nevertheless, Texas is a big state. It's a long way across. So Sure. Uh, so, um, so Scott, so you, you have kind of the longer view, as you said, over 16 years of experience. Um, the numbers for Giving USA just came out, as we all know, uh, Religion fell a little bit again. Uh, individual giving is down. Um, just curious, what do you, what are you seeing in the diocese of Austin? Uh, what are some of the trends in, in philanthropy in the last couple of years? Yeah, sure. So in um, you know in in the diocese, uh, we I think are really benefiting from that tremendous growth that I talked about mm. uh, earlier. I yeah. think uh, we we simply are probably not. Feeling some of the pinch, perhaps that other nonprofits might be experiencing, uh, because we have we have volume and growth in Texas, and, and certainly certainly coming into Central Texas and the Austin area. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I I do think that we still have some challenges here. Uh, we uh, I, I hear a lot about this around the country, and I think many of our colleagues around the country share some of the same things. We are raising more money every year for the mission of the church, no doubt. Great. I think the challenge that we are experiencing is we're seeing uh, a higher average gift and lower numbers of people participating in our bishops' annual appeals and uh, various charitable uh, Catholic charitable causes in in our in our diocese. So it's uh, it's kind of an interesting time period. I think we're benefiting from the the great growth, but we're also experiencing a little bit of uh, some unique challenges that we are raising more money, but from fewer people. And I think you mentioned the Giving USA numbers. I think that's, uh, to me, is very fascinating for us to really, uh, you know, dig deeper into the, into those numbers. And, and again, a lot of the things that I have read recently of, uh, I think a lot are pointing to the, the implication of the tax laws. Yes. Uh, I still think we're still out to kind of see if that's actually something that is the cause of this, but. Uh, you can't help but think that it actually might be a, a, a contributing factor into some of the uh, reductions in charitable giving. Oh, without a doubt. I, I, I think that's what I, I read an article from the Lilly School of Philanthropy in the last week or so uh, that they can, they attributed it to that as well as the, the decreasing numbers in, in mass attendance and also the increase in the number of nuns or those that don't affiliate with a particular religion. But um, I think it's probably maybe a little bit of a perfect storm in that there are a number of different factors that go into that. Right. My own two cents. But mm -hmm. um, so are, are you, uh, you know, I, you and I were doing uh, development back uh, in 08, 09 when the, uh, when the recession hit. Uh, I remember back then we were all working twice as hard just to raise the same amount of money as right. we had in, in previous years. Uh, uh, it's, Ten years later, how are you? Uh, are you working differently today than you were a couple years ago, or uh, how are you seeing you know some, some of your workflow? 
right? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Something to kind of uh, you know to kind of think about a little bit because you're right. During you know eight, nine, and ten, we actually ran a capital campaign for our diocese. Oh wow! Two thousand six and seven, and we collected in eight, nine, ten, and eleven during that time frame. Hmm. It definitely changed our approach in terms of the fulfillment process that we went through during that time. Um, I, I think that you know, kind of fast forward several years, I think. By and large, it seems, at least in Texas, the economy seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, Jobs are pretty plentiful in Texas. Uh, We obviously have access to oil and gas. Sure. A lot of of oil and gas drilling in Texas. So I I think Texas is is, is a bit insulated from uh, from a lot of things. But uh, nevertheless, I think uh, some of the things that I may have changed since that time is uh, a, a little more focus on major gift relationships. Right. And I think that's something that uh, those of us that are uh, church workers, uh, diocesan development, parish development, we don't need to be afraid to invite people to make significant gifts to the church. Uh, I, I think without a doubt, our our friends and colleagues at the universities and the hospitals, the national nonprofits would, would all be uh, seeking significant gifts. So uh, I think major gifts are a real focus for us now. We are entering into our second diocesan campaign. We're in the middle of that right now. Uh, so we're, we're spending a lot of time with that uh, as well. But I think really relationships, major gifts, uh, just the, the usual things that a, that a good development director should be doing. Sure. Being out of the office, visiting with donors and prospects, spending significant time with them, um, Really, and then and then to kind of really focus on mission, mm-hmm. I think that's a really uh, something else that's unique. That uh, just going back to the mission of the church and why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, a third thing that I think is very important that I've seen some significant changes would be uh, the use of technology, social media, our web presence. Uh, even I don't use any podcasts necessarily in our diocese, but we're on a podcast today. Uh, the sure. rise of podcast has been huge uh, in recent years. So I think technology and uh, you know that has really played a role in how we communicate uh, with people today as well. So that might be a little thing that's a lot different than what we experienced 10 years ago. I agree. I, I want to go back to what you were talking about regarding major gifts. I mean, you go back... 10 or 15 years ago, you didn't see a lot of dioceses that were really doing major gifts or had a formalized major gift program. Is that something that you inherited or is that something that you had to begin uh, as secretary for stewardship? Yeah, we're, we're still, I would still say we are in the early stages of that. We began that process in the first campaign where we really got our first million dollar gift to the diocese. Uh, we'd never received anything like that before in 2006 and 2007. Fast forward now, our two lead gifts in the current campaign, one is $12 million and the second one is a $3 million gift. Beautiful. So the gifts are there in that way. And and so I didn't inherit that. We've kind of built that up over time, kind of post-second campaign. I really see us kind of even going further uh, in terms of developing 
that major gift relationship. And Scott, I, I know you were uh, going, you know, back to your third point on technology. You 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 were kind of an like me. You were an early adopter, I think, uh, with dioceses trying to implement the use of Facebook and and other means of social media. Uh, have you seen that grown? Uh, I guess uh, I, I want to say it was probably oh eight oh nine. Maybe a little earlier than that when we first got onto Facebook and started a YouTube channel. Um, have you seen the, the popularity of that grown and are, are you using that more in your development program today? Yeah, I definitely think I've seen it grow. If you think about um, the gorilla still in the room, if you will, is still Facebook. Although you and I would probably look at that differently because we have teenagers. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't think the teenagers care that much about Facebook, uh, at least not in my household. No, mine either. Uh, so I, I still think you have to have a Facebook page and a Facebook presence, uh, certainly knowing and understanding you know, Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and other social strategies. And I think I think I've I've definitely seen them on the rise more for us as well. But I still think by and large, I think we're still struggling, at least here and maybe in Catholic Church with the most effective way to utilize social media. Mm -hmm. So I think we're still trying to figure that out. But I've definitely seen it on the rise. Definitely see uh, more activity uh, in, in the social media platforms that are available to us today. Again, I still think we're trying to figure out exactly what our role is and what our place is from a development perspective. I think it makes a lot of sense in evangelization and catechesis and, and inspiration, but I'm not so sure that we've capitalized fully on how do we convert a number of likes on Instagram into dollars raised, if you will. So I still think we're still trying to figure that out. I think that's definitely true in the, in the Catholic and the diocesan space. I think probably universities may have that, or some of the universities may have that a little bit more uh, down to a science, but there's certainly room for us to grow. So, Scott, I know, gosh, I think one of the first times I met you, you were, you were giving a talk maybe with somebody else from your office on annual fund. This is probably going back more than 10 years. Tell us a little bit about how your, uh, your annual fund has evolved uh, over the last several years. When I joined you know, over 16 years ago, our annual fund was right at $3 million. We're over $6 million now in our annual fund. Great. We continued to grow the annual fund. Kind of going back to what we said earlier, Jim, I'm kind <laughs> of an old school guy. I fell into fundraising. Right. Uh, but I'm also still a big fan of annual funds. I think that at least in the Diocese of Austin uh, and maybe a lot of other dioceses, uh, that is where we draw number of our prospects and donor relationships. Uh, you know, it all starts with that person who writes the $25 check or makes a $25 gift online. And so the annual appeal is vitally important to the work that we do. It's certainly a, a third of our operating budget in the diocese, more than a third of, of our, probably 40% of our operating budget in the diocese of Austin. So it's still very important to us. We still use some of the same types of things. We do direct mail. We do an in-pew solicitation. I would say probably one thing, going back to what we talked about earlier, we really upped our game with videos and our social presence. Hmm. Uh, I think we're using that a lot more to get the word out about some of the activities and things that are funded through our annual appeal. So I think that's been a big shift and big change for us uh, with our annual appeal. So, Scott, if, if you know somebody is listening to the podcast, maybe they're newer to the diocesan development work, uh, what would be your advice you know, in, in this climate and just in the work that we do to be you know, more proactive today in their work uh, in philanthropy? For those that are in the diocesan work, uh, I would 
probably stress one thing more than anything else. And I, I learned it almost 20 years ago now, and that is build strong relationships with your priests. That has been something that I've learned for a long, long time. And I still do that to, you know, today. Get out of the office, go visit them, spend some time with them, ask them for a tour of their facilities. Uh, give me a tour of the church. Walk around with them, really spend some time learning about them, where they're from, what their interests are. That has been absolutely critical to our success, is strong relationships with the priests and uh, certainly the pastors of our various parishes would be one thing. Annual appeal, I'm still, I'm still a big fan of annual appeals. I think they're important. I think they're easy to do. I think they're still a vitally important part of our overall development in a diocese. So I think that's an important thing. The last thing I would say would be major gifts. It's very simple, or at least it should be, that you can go to your database, draw out your top 100 donors, and call them, go visit, and see how they're doing. Thank them for what's going on. Uh, invite them to call on their friends and make introductions for you. Uh, so those are, those are a couple of things that I think are, are kind of important as you get going in a development office. Uh, certainly a diocesan development office um, would be would be key from my standpoint. Boy, I, I couldn't agree more. I think your point number one is probably point number one, two, and three. Have good relationships with pastors because eventually, I mean, things happen, right? A mailing doesn't go out on time or something happens that you didn't anticipate uh, and you have to kind of build up some equity with the pastors. I remember when I started in Allentown, the first thing I did was get around to all the regional deanery meetings so I could at least introduce myself so they could put a face with a name. I couldn't agree more. Spending time with them and getting to know their individual situations. When you've seen one parish, you've seen one parish. You know, every community has a different dynamic and different needs and serves a different kind of community. And that pastor's charism, his personality, it, it carries that his leadership role uh, carries that community. And it's so important that we, you know, we show them that we're here to help them. So stewardship, um, tell us a little bit about uh, the work happening in stewardship for, uh, for parishes in your diocese. Uh, would you say it's pretty active? Unfortunately, I would say in, in the Diocese of Austin, we are probably not as active as we really uh, should be or could be. We still have various parishes that are uh, doing great ministry and great work in the area of stewardship. They are kind of following the plan. They're, they are, uh, they're doing good work in, in that area. But I think, unfortunately, at least in our diocese, maybe in, in other dioceses that have significant growth, we've probably put a little bit more work into the area of advancement and development, major gift work, capital campaigning. At one point, we had uh, 40 of our 123 parishes running independent parish campaigns. So I, I think what we're seeing is we have had such significant growth in our diocese that we've kind of lost a little bit of the spirituality of stewardship in our, in our parishes. It doesn't mean that we don't talk about our own giftedness and sharing those gifts with others throughout a campaign process. At the end of the day, kind of waiting for tithing to take effect in a parish, if you will, mm. sometimes just doesn't work. You need a new activity building to house 3,000 families that are registered at your parish. Uh, that becomes a real issue for a parish that's seeing significant growth. So I think we have a lot of work to do yet to do in the area of stewardship. I do have a stewardship director. She spends a lot of her time consulting, working with parishes. So we still have a lot of work to do in that area. 
I would even say, if, if I could, Jim, just to add to that real quick while I'm thinking about it. So another area, so what we have found in not only in stewardship, so we kind of the, the, the traditional model of stewardship, time, talent, and treasure, the annual commitment and renewal process, you know, those things are still there and they're still very important, of course. But what we're finding is and kind of a, an emphasis on other areas. So when we talk to a parish today, we're, we're talking about things like, how's your website? How's your Facebook page? What does your bulletin look like? Are you doing a newsletter? Are you utilizing one of the electronic newsletter vendors that are available to us today to get the word out about things that are going on? Are you texting your parishioners if you're giving them an update on things that are happening? Electronic giving, what vendor are you using with electronic giving? So we're actually finding that those kind of tactical areas within stewardship, if you will, and on the consulting side, we spend a lot of time in our parishes with that. So I think that's a little bit of a shift that we've experienced in the Diocese of Austin. Well, that's that's tremendous. And, and like you say, having good relationships with pastors causes them to want to pick up the phone and, and call your stewardship director and, and consultor, you know, on, on these kinds of things. That's, that's right. wonderful. So I, I was going to actually, kind of my next question was going to be, if there is a maybe a pastor listening to our, our little podcast here, and what would be your and maybe he's in a in a parish that is struggling financially, and uh, but it was is thinking of uh, incorporating stewardship and would like to use that spirituality or theology or what would be your advice? Like where where do you think they should get started? Obviously, I'm a, I'm a little biased. I think you know, go to the ICSC conference. <laughs> uh, uh, I think it's a great start. It's a place to get connected with other people around the country. I have been going for years and years, and even someone like me, I still come out of uh, those conferences, and I've, I've learned two or three things that I bring back here to my office. And so that's very, very helpful to me. Secondly, I do think because of the advancements in technology, we have things like podcasts. We have webinars all across the country put on by various vendors, and they're all very, very good. I mean, I think educate yourself, form yourself in that area. Uh, is great. Uh, to this day, I still recommend our pastors and finance councils and pastoral councils read the bishop's letter on stewardship, the pastoral letter on stewardship. It's still rich and full of great information and, and education about the spirituality of stewardship. So I think that's a great opportunity for someone to go and, and, and get started with that uh, as well. And then I definitely call your diocesan office. I think that's an important component. That's uh, at least in our diocese. We talk about this a lot. Uh, we are here to work with our parishes and to serve our parishes and schools. And I can't stress that enough. So if you're out there and you're listening, call your diocesan director. They're, they're, they should be a, a wealth of information for you. I mean, if not, call me or call you or call anyone else that sure. uh, has uh, access to that. I think that's a, a great start. Last thing I would say, Jim, is uh, we've noticed a lot of our parishes uh, taking full advantage of new uh, leadership models. And uh, there's obviously there's several out there with Amazing Parish and Rebuilt and, and, and others that uh, I, I think are uh, offering new models of leadership and parish governance that I think all lend themselves to becoming better stewardship parishes. So that's another great opportunity to kind of see what else is going on and, and kind of learn from those new models. That's interesting to me. Tell, tell us a little bit more about the some of the leadership models that you've seen, Scott. So we've actually made a little bit of a shift in our diocese uh, about a year, year and a half ago. 
we started sending our pastors and their leadership teams to the Amazing Parish Conference. And uh, I think we're close to, I want to say, 18 parishes great. have attended the Amazing Parish Conference. And I think what we're beginning to see, many of the pastors that have come back, kind of embracing this newer leadership model, I think what they're seeing is they're asking for help. They're inviting lay leadership into the, the governance structures, you know, certainly within the law of the church, but giving them opportunities to be very active, uh, to pray together, good liturgies. Those are things that have been really, really helpful to our parishes here. And I think our pastors have benefited from learning about that particular uh, model with, with Amazing Parish. There are others out there. There are lots of opportunities for there, there are other vendors that are getting really, really good at helping us in, in the diocesan structures to give good information out to our parishes. So I think we've benefited from Amazing Parish, but there are others out there that I think provide great models and great new tools for parishes. Well, that's absolutely wonderful advice. And Certainly, I, th- I think any any parish that is looking to revitalize, I mean, so many of the parishes that we come in contact with have, have a single pastor or a pastor who oversees, you know, more than one, one parish, one, more than one church. Uh, we have to find new models. We're going to burn these poor guys out. They're, you know, one person can't manage all of that. So it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's definitely, I think that's the biggest shift that I've experienced in my time in, in working in a couple of dioceses is, you know, the demands on a pastor at a parish. And we've got a couple of parishes in our diocese. They've got six or 7,000 registered families, Jim. Wow. You have a couple of priests that are active in ministry at those parishes. It is impossible to maintain strong community and parishioner relationships without utilizing some type of new governance model or new staff structure that uh, allows our priest to do the things that many of them went to seminary for. The sacraments, the richness and beauty, the spirituality of the church, uh, walking alongside people in, in difficult times. They're running a $3 million small business in many time, many cases, and it's just, it's difficult. And so I think these newer models are beginning to pick up a little bit and help help our pastors know that they're not alone, they're not on an island. There are people out there that are really, really good at counting and marketing right. and facilities management and all the things that go into running a business. And uh, so I think that's an important thing for them to, to do. And for us, it's all about that relationship. If we don't have a strong relationship with our pastors, then it's difficult for us to to have those conversations about new models. Well, that's very very well said, Scott. I one of the realities, of course, that all dioceses are dealing with these days is uh, the impact of the scandal in the church. And certainly, I, I don't think uh, any of us who are in fundraising or in, in Catholic philanthropy or stewardship, it's touched every one of us in some way. How has it impacted you in the Diocese of Austin, and, and what have, what kind of proactive measures have you all taken to, to message to the faithful? Yeah, without a doubt, I think as we talked about the Giving USA numbers, uh, if you were to kind of peel back the layers a little bit in terms of religion and certainly in the Catholic Church, 
not only would you say tax law is, is possible causes for that, but we can't bury our heads in the sand that some of the recent scandals and transparency issues that exist in the church today are the cause of perhaps some of our declines in charitable giving to the church. So without a doubt, I think we have to recognize that and know that it is a, a real concern for us to invite people into the life and ministry of the church but also at the same time, be open and honest and transparent enough that inspires them to invest in the ministry of the church. So here in our diocese, obviously the Texas diocese is this was a big, a big moment for us. We uh, listed all of the names of credibly abused in our diocese. The state of Texas did it together. And that was a, a, a real opportunity for us to grow together as as the state of Texas, diocese in the state of Texas, but also another level of transparency in the church that we recognize and know that that these are these are real issues real people are being harmed the people of god are being harmed here and so that was one opportunity for us to to be transparent i think that has been helpful to us as well i think just a growing uh, sense of transparency and openness i think has been something that many dioceses are now doing and handling as well we have a page on our website, Jim, that speaks directly to any of the questions or concerns that people may have in our own diocese. So I think those those things have been pretty helpful for us. Uh, but no doubt, I still think there are people that uh, continue to hurt and question, you know, church, the church leadership. And it's it's definitely something that I think is going to have, I think, a, a longer term impact than what we think it may uh, in the in church philanthropy today. Well, I think certainly it has been maybe the singular issue of, of our careers. Uh, as a couple of guys have been working in the church for a good part of our careers. And I don't, I agree. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And I agree that the, the level of transparency that we can bring from diocese to diocese only will only help assuage the fears that these kinds of things are still going on. And certainly we've seen a rise in the number of Catholic foundations around the country and different right. legal entities that keep keep the funds separate, you know, and then hopefully that brings a sense of peace of mind to the donors so they're willing to continue to invest in, in the mission of the church today. Yeah, I think that's the last thing I would add, Jim, is it's a reliance on, on mission. Right. Uh, I, I think often we miss that. Uh, we, we miss that mark. We get caught up in some of the technical aspects of the work that we do. Did the mailing get out on time? Did I get 20 visits completed this month? Those kinds of things. Right. But at the end of the day, it is about mission. It is about impact. It's about the work that we do in the church. And we kind of have to remind ourselves to get back to mission and to focus on mission and what we're doing and the impact we're having in people's lives. You know, that's an important thing here, and I don't, I don't think we should uh, discount that. I completely agree. I think mission is the reason that we all got into it. It's funny sometimes I would, in, in the past, I've gone into meetings and somebody would say, oh, here's the money guy. No, I'm not the money guy. I'm the, I'm the, mission. I'm the mission guy, you know. Money follows mission, and I think uh, mm -hmm. that's really critical, what, what, what you're saying. So, um, Scott, final thoughts. Uh, what's new in 1920 uh, in the Diocese of Austin? I know you're uh, in the middle of a major capital campaign. How long is that going to run? So we should finish our active pledge phase of the campaign by the end of the year. We're, uh, we have a goal of $85 million and we're right at about $63 million in pledges now with the last wave. So we're 
we're looking somewhere between you know 85 and 100 million in terms of pledges in this campaign and that's a five-year pledge payout so that's you know, the next five years, our diocese is going to be celebrating its 75th anniversary. Wonderful. In just a couple, three years. So that's kind of on the horizon for us as well. You know, and I think probably just still monitoring the work in Texas, monitoring the growth in Texas. I think for us, we haven't talked hardly much about it at all today, Jim, but you know, Hispanic ministry, the growth of Hispanic families in the Catholic Church today is something that we we talk about quite often in Texas. You know, so so many uh, different statistics that have come out of the fifth and quintro process in the church that was completed a couple of years ago now, or a year ago now. I mean, just some crazy numbers in terms of something like 70 to 80% of the children under the age of 18 in Texas are of Hispanic origin. Wow. Um, this is this is a really important demographic and issue for the church in Texas. So I would guess in the next 15 to 20 years in the state of Texas, the Catholic Church in the state of Texas will, will look very, very different. Oh, uh, I'm than, sure. Than it does. So that's probably something that we would, where we would say is a, is a strategic priority for us in the next 15 to 20 years. And have you seen, Scott, with the uh, growing number of Hispanic families in your area, how have you kind of ad- adapted? I would imagine you've had to expand or change or grow a little bit your initiatives around stewardship or around campaigns uh, from what you were doing 16 years ago when you first started. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And quite frankly, we're still trying to figure that out uh, uh, every day. Yeah, uh, we're still looking for uh, you know solutions, if you will, sure. uh, to uh, the stewardship conundrum, and uh, even the translation of the word still yes. has issues in our Spanish-speaking communities. And so, I still think we're trying to figure it out. I think we're finding a couple of responses in terms of campaigning. I, I still think we're trying to figure that out, Jim. And this is uh, this is kind of an important issue that we probably need to take a look at in the coming years, uh, through ICSC, through our national dialogues, through the vendors that we work with, of continuing to, to push the envelope and try to figure out how do we reach our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters, certainly those that are coming new to our country, that first-generation immigrant, or maybe that second-generation immigrant. That's a real opportunity for us. That's We have work to do for us. We work to do still in that area. In development, in development, absolutely. Well, Scott, uh, it's been great having you on the on the show today. You co- we covered a lot of really important topics. Any any final thoughts for us? I just appreciate the time, Jim. Thanks uh, for your good work and your good ministry, and for doing these podcasts. I think they are necessary and welcomed in the church. So, uh, thank you for inviting me to be a part of that today. And I would offer, if anyone's listening, if they need someone to listen to them or offer uh, opinions or advice uh, or just a a question about church development, uh, please contact me. Go to our austindiocese.org website and look for me, and I'd be happy to help as much as I can. Thank you for that, Scott. I appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show today, and hopefully we'll see you in the fall at ICSE. Yep, I plan on it, Jim. Thank you. Great. God bless. Bye-bye. I want to thank Scott and Diana Curran for being on our show this week. If you have any questions for Scott, I've included his contact information in our show notes. 
And of course, if you have any comments or questions for us, feel free to leave us a comment on our website or send me an email at jim at advancingourchurch.com. Well, that's our show this week. Special thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for their support of our show. If you'd like more information about our podcast, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for the past 20 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everybody. I hope you're having a great summer. Take care, have a great week, and God bless.